You're listening to Sports Connections with David Smale, the show that brings you a fun and intimate look into connections throughout sports. Now here's your host, David Smale. Chuck Swirsky has been in the sports broadcasting business for more than 40 years. Native of the Pacific Northwest, he was one of the early pioneers in sports talk radio, beginning his career in Chicago in 1979, where after ventures away from the Windy City, he's been the voice of the Bulls for the past 13 years. Through the years, he's been the PA voice of the Bulls and the play-by-play voice of DePaul basketball, University of Michigan basketball, the Toronto Raptors, and of course now the Bulls, and even a few games as the stand-in for Jason Benetti as the voice of Chicago White Sox. He was inducted into the Chicagoland Sports Hall of Fame in 2015. Chuck and I first connected when he was the host of Sports Spectrum Radio Show, and he wrote in Sports Spectrum Magazine. So, Chuck, welcome to Sports Connections. Thank you, David. Good to see you. Thank you. You too. You too. Let's talk about your growing up years. Were you always a big sports fan? Absolutely. I mean, ever since I was a little boy, in fact, David, I knew I was going to be a, or wanted to be, I should say, a sportscaster at the age of five, and uh, really confirmed that was going into the second grade. You know, the teacher lines up tallest to shortest or vertically challenged now, I should say. (laughs) And uh, I was at the end of the line, so to speak, every year. Yeah, not the correct end. I I came home and I was just really distraught. And I went to my mom and she said, you know what, God has another plan for you. And he certainly did. Yeah, that's that's cool. So when did you decide that a career in sports broadcasting made sense for you did you were you like one of the kids that when you're all the buddies were playing ball that you would announce what was going on well uh that's a good question and that's a two-part answer number one uh, in actually some elementary school middle school and high school i was able to read the daily bulletin you know the notes like after school we have a track and field meet at 3 30 and all you have to do is give the school a quarter and you get a free snow cone, you know, one of those. <laughs> so I did that. And, uh, and actually growing up in a home, my father was a career naval officer. And so he was on maneuvers and he was on around the globe, so to speak. My mom really raised the three of us. My father died when I was in elementary school. And so my mom, because I wasn't very good athletically, but I wanted to be a part of a team So in those days, um, the CYO, the Catholic Youth Organization, you'd pay your $5 and you'd be on a team. Now, that did not necessarily mean you were going to play, but they gave you a uniform. You had to show up for practice. And um, you knew you were in trouble, David, when you went to practice and you didn't practice. Okay, it's not like you went to a game and say, okay, I'm probably not going to play a game. When you go to practice, you don't play in a practice. That was that was the light bulb went up saying, I'm in trouble. Yeah. And the same thing in Little League Baseball. Though in Little League Baseball, they had to play you at least one inning uh, every two games. So I remember one day, you know, they, they had the uh, rule that if you were up by 10 or down by 10, the game was over. So one day we're up by 10 and uh, the coach says, Hey, Charlie, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to put you in next inning. If the team does not get a run, then we'll get you in another game. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm hoping actually for the other team to score so I can play. And I thought, you know, something's wrong with this equation. That's not the way you want to, you know, operate. And so uh, unfortunately or fortunately for us, The team, the opposing team did not score. I did not get in the game and I eventually got into some game. But there there's there is a small version of what I went through as a kid. It's interesting. I I used to coach Little League Baseball and I had that same rule. It wasn't a league rule, but I had the same rule that, you know, if you didn't start, you finished the game And, and each kid played every game. And we had one kid, it was a challenge to get him in there. And at the end of the year, we gave awards and he won the award for our best left-handed hitter. And you can probably guess why he got that award. Cause that was the only one he qualified for. Cause he was our only left-handed hitter. So I understand about the, the challenges uh, with that. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't any good either. I, I love to play every sport and I was equally bad at all of them. So I understand that 
completely. Now, it seems like Chicago has been central to your career. Why Chicago? Well, actually, you know, um, I was uh, broadcasting when I graduated from Ohio University. I, I did a couple of glorified internships. Uh, one was in Cleveland, and um, I was on the air there uh, sporadically, but I was on the air. I was kind of like behind the scenes person. And uh, then that ran its course. And I went back home to Seattle and I was all set to go to graduate school at the University of Washington. And just before grad school started, um, KIRO in Seattle called and said, hey, we're looking for somebody. We dusted off your resume that you sent in like eight, 10 months ago. And would you be interested? So I went down to the radio station in Seattle, met with the sports director who later became one of my closest friends, one of the finest human beings I've ever met in the late Pete Gross, who was an awesome supervisor. And so I, I worked there probably over a year. I was the type of person where I'd go in the locker room and get those 20 second sound bites, you know, and I covered the Sonics, I covered the Mariners, University of Washington, and I was one, you know, in, in the media scrum, you know, you want that 20 second soundbite. So, you know, there's a cluster of people around an athlete and here I am trying to jump over, you know, like too deep. And so then I would get the 20 second soundbite. I go back to the radio station, cut it up, meaning I put the soundbite on a cart. I'm dating myself now. We didn't have all the digital stuff and the technology we have today. So I would go in and I would put it on a cart and I would leave it for the on-air person. And so there'd be a stack of cards, David. There would be, you know, uh, Fred Brown on the game, uh, Jack Sigma talking about his performance. You know, like I'm 21, 22 years old. And so then, like, I was excited and the person on the air said, hey, the Sonics beat the Suns last night, 120 to 118 on a Jack Sigma jumper with three seconds left. After the game, I asked him how it felt. I went, wait a minute. You didn't ask that. I did. <laughs> but that's the way it worked. And it's Jack, good. You know, it was a good life lesson. Yeah. So, Jack, Jack Sigma's sweet, funky jumper where he yeah. do this and then bring it back. And, the inside and pivot, and he later way, yeah. became a very good friend, very good friend. And so I was in Seattle, internship ends, I'm looking for work. I get a job in Columbus, Ohio at WBNS, and this was a great opportunity. And this is how the Lord works, David. So I'm in, I'm in Seattle, I'm applying for this job, and the general manager and the program director, they were basically rolled up into one. This was a one-man operation. Um, although, you know, we had a news director, we had a sports director. And so I, I did an audition over the phone. I never <laughs> met. In those days, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have right. Zoom, like what we're doing right now, video channeling and, and with the connection here. So he goes, we're going to call you back tomorrow. And I want you to write a three-minute sports cast and we're going to record it. And so we'll call you back at one o'clock. So I'm thinking, wow. So I go home. I'm using a typewriter, not a computer, a typewriter. <laughs> I'm banging out a three-minute sportscast. They call right at one o'clock. And they said, if you make a mistake, keep going. You're going to have two chances. You keep going no matter what. Now, you talk about pressure. I mean, I'm feeling pressure. And... This is for a sports talk show. And so I did the first sports cast and, you know, I didn't have a hiccup. And the guy goes, okay, then um, I guess we won't need a second. I said, I want to do the second. He goes, but you didn't make any mistakes. This was okay. I said, I don't want to be okay. I want to be great. And so he said, all right, it's yours. And so I did it the second time, a lot more confidence, went smoothly. So now I don't hear from them for about two or three days and I'm getting worried. And so I called Ernie Harwell and Ernie Harwell, the late great voice, Hall of Fame broadcaster, mm -hmm. Hall of Fame human being of the Detroit Tigers. I met Ernie when I was 12 years old 
And I met him because I would stay with a family in Baltimore. My mom's brother knew this family in Baltimore. This gentleman was the sports director at WBAL-TV in Baltimore. And they were kind enough to open their house to me during the summers. So his name's Vince Bagley, who just passed away at 95. And so I would go into the TV station every night with Vince, every night. I would go to Orioles games. I would go to training camp with the Colts. I mean, Vince knew everybody. Brooks yeah. Robinson would just pop in his house, like just <laughs> on the spur of the moment, say, Vince, we got a golf game. Let's go. And here I am, 12 years old, in the living room. And Brooks Robinson, who is larger than life in the mid-60s, you yeah. know, I mean, and to this day remains Mr. Oriole. Right. And I'm thinking, oh, my word, you've got to be kidding me. This is Brooks Robinson. He's two feet from me. So uh, I meet all these people, including Ernie Harwell. And so I call up Ernie. I said, Ernie, I'm up for a job. I don't know if where I stand with it, but can you please call this operations manager at WBNS in Columbus? Because I really need to work. I really want this job. So Ernie said, no problem. Gave Ernie the telephone number for WBNS in Columbus. Ernie calls him. The operations manager at WBNS is from Detroit, Michigan. Oh, my goodness. Grew up listening to Ernie Harwell. Yeah. So think about this. Here, he's probably got a thousand things going on. He's at his desk. Remember, there's no internet. And he's probably listening to tapes, trying to run a radio station. And his assistant uh, probably walks in and says, I've got an Ernie Harwell on the phone for you. Do you want to take it or should I tell him to call back or you're busy? And he goes, what? And so he takes the call. They have a conversation. I don't know to what degree I was involved in my name, but it came up and I got the job. So I go to Columbus, Ohio. I don't know a soul at the radio station. They put me on the air like Two, two days after I got there, said, good luck. I was on the air for four hours a night. So now we're going to move ahead from February. And now it's the first week in August. And I'm sitting in the newsroom, sitting in the newsroom about 30 minutes before we're on the air. And we were on the air every night from 7 to 11. And I get a call, and it's a headhunter. And he goes, I'm so-and-so, and, -so, and um, your name has been brought up as a possible host for a sports talk show with a major station in the Midwest. Well, I thought it was a friend of mine playing a practical joke, yeah. so I hung up on him. <laughs> and so he calls back like two minutes later and says, don't do that again. And so he reintroduces himself. And he asked for an unedited, unfiltered, straight four hours. I'm running around the newsroom looking for blank cassette tapes so we can record everything. So we record that show. I send it. You know, in those days, again, you have to understand yeah. it's 1979. This is 42 years ago. So I send it in the mail with one of those puffy little mail pouches, you know, mm -hmm. envelopes, and it gets there and they say, we need you to come in to Chicago. And I said, Chicago? And they said, yes. So I went to WCFL Studios in Marina Towers and I had about a 20 minute interview. That was it. And I actually did the interview during Big Ten Media Day during lunch and because I was on the flight with uh, WBNS TV and radio and newspaper reporters, that's how I got from Columbus to Chicago. You talk about timing with the Lord, just like Ernie Harwell, yeah. this was the Lord working. So I sneak away from the lunch at the Big Ten Media Day interview at like 12.15, come back, no one knew I was gone. And so I interviewed. I didn't think I had any shot. 
They said, we'll call you on Tuesday, which was about five, six days from then. I wait, wait, no call. Finally, about eight days later, I get a call and they said, you're our guy. And oh, by the way, we need to start in four days. I went, what? <laughs> and so that, uh, that, that's how I got to Chicago the first time. That's amazing, Chuck. I did not know all that detail. I knew a little bit about it, but I did not know all that detail. And it's interesting, sports talk radio, every, every city, more than you know, 10,000 people has a sports talk radio station and some of the bigger ones have multiple uh, stations. The, it's sports talk radio was in its infancy. How did you figure out what to talk about? How did you figure out how to make your show successful? Well, the, the station had a mandate and their theme, this was the mutual broadcasting system, which is no longer around. Right. But they bought the station to become a quote news talk station. And their, their foundation was change your lifestyle. And, and so I asked my supervisor, said, what does that mean? We want you to talk about hunting. We want you to talk about billiards. We don't want, you know, football, basketball, baseball. We want to relate to people. I said, this is Chicago. I mean, they're into <laughs> yeah. the Cubs, Sox, Bulls, Blackhawks, yeah. Bears, Big Ten, Notre Dame, 90 minutes away. And they said, no, if you want to do this, you're going to change subjects every 12 minutes every 12 minutes, and we're going to have you convince people they need their lifestyle change. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if we're into that 25 to 54, that's our target demographic, usually by the time you're 25 to 54, you have figured out your lifestyle. Yeah. You don't need some, you know, consultant to tell an on-air person to force it down somebody's throat. So after about three months of doing this, and it was going nowhere, I walked into my boss and I said, can you please take off the shackles, please? And he goes, all right, it's yours. And it took off and it was great. And so I'm very appreciative of the fact that uh, my boss agreed to do so. So what do, you, what do you think, obviously it wasn't successful right away, but once you took those shackles off, it was. What do you think helped it grow? Well, number one, we were the only game in town in terms of sports talk. So for people driving around at night or they attended a game, they've got the radio on after a game. I think that helped. I think word of mouth spread. I think because we were the only voice to allow athletes and coaches to come on um, and share their wisdom or opinions about things. And so I think this is just my opinion. I think it became a base for a number of people to, uh, to either get their agenda out uh, or to just say, here's who I am, here's what it's about, and here's my opinion. There were two occasions I remember early in my sports talk career in Chicago, like Tony LaRusso was named manager of the White Sox in early August. I arrived in the third week in August. And I remember I got to know him and he was great. Now, while the White Sox were playing a game, I was on the air. You know, our show was seven to 11. The White Sox in those days started at 7.30. Those games though, it wasn't like today where yeah. a pitcher takes three and a half minutes to throw a pitch. I mean, those games were played in 220, 225. We're talking about a nine-inning game, not necessarily even a one-nothing, two-one game, David. It would be a five-four game, and the game would go two and a half hours. If you attended a White Sox game, you were in your car by 10 o'clock. If it was a 7:30 game, if it was a seven o'clock game, you're in your car by 9:30. Yeah. So, but Tony LaRusso would drive after the game. Remember, there were only a handful of people covering sports in Chicago. You had the Tribune, you had the Sun-Times, the Southtown Economist, the Daily Herald, maybe a camera crew or two, maybe a radio station or two. That was it. Yeah. So Tony, on occasion, would, after the game, drive and come on the radio show. Now here, they just played. Yeah. So it's 10-15. He walks through the door. 
<laughs> you, you think that would fly today? Number one, the game's never in, you know, at 10, yeah. 15 anymore. But secondly, you think you get a major league manager to, after the game, shower, get dressed, get in the car, drive downtown, park the car, and come on the show for the final 40, 45 minutes? Absolutely not. Yeah. So, but we would have coaches on. It was great. And I'm, and I'm guessing knowing you, uh, and we're not buddy-buddy by any stretch. We, we don't know each other that well. But I know you well enough to know that you didn't just say, so why did you uh, substitute pitchers here in the eighth? Or why did you pinch hit this guy? You got a little bit more in-depth. Do you think that's what helped, you know, one, pass those four hours, but helped your, your show become popular because you, they were getting more than just the – you know, who scored and, and who won by how much? Well, I, I went into this, David, saying, here's what, number one, you got to be yourself. You can't yeah. be somebody that you're not. And knowledge is very, very powerful. And, and that comes from within, and that is a self-motivator. Even to this day, you always want to continue to grow. So if I would have a coach on or a player, I wanted to do my homework. Now, again, yeah. this is pre-internet. They're the only connection we had to find out information, you had to pick up the phone, you had to work at it. And but by knowledge and by education, then the athletes and the coaches knew, hey, you know what? Maybe this young guy knows what he's talking about, or maybe he's just asking a question instead of making a statement. One of the biggest problems I've got, well, there are a few things I've got with <laughs> sports talk today. Number one, the host will come on and they will make a statement and then expect the athlete or coach to respond to their statement. It, that's not how it should work. You're the host. You asked the questions. You invited somebody to come on your show. So the host has a responsibility to ask questions that John or Jane Doe in the car are thinking. Right. So ask the question. Don't make a statement. The second thing I've got is, okay, I invite a guest on the show. And maybe I don't necessarily agree with him or her. You still have to respect them. So when the interview is over and they leave, the airspace, and you move on, as soon as you say, thanks for coming on, have a great day, thank you. All of a sudden, I hear so many sports talk show hosts, and they rip the guests they just had, or they'll say something negative, or they'll try and be cute. When number one, him or her can't defend themselves, they're right. no longer a part of the connection. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, you just invited somebody to come on your show, and regardless if you agree with them or not, you know, you have from a from just a common courtesy standpoint, even if you're not on the same page in the interview, and I wasn't always on the same page with a guest, I disagreed with them, I did it politely, and I was very respectful, but you don't hammer the guest you just had after they get off the air yeah. and it drives me crazy anyway. Yeah, no, great, great point. And I, before I go on to the next question that I, that I had prepared for you, uh, Ernie Harwell is one of my favorite people. When I was the director of communications at FCA, uh, I got to know him uh, through covering baseball as well. <clears throat> and I picked him up at the hotel in Kansas city, drove him out to FCA headquarters so he could, do the chapel service. Then I took him back to the hotel so he could go a couple of hours later over to the stadium, which was literally across the highway from where I had just had him. Uh, but what a, what a great man. Did you ever get a chance to say thank you to him for the influence he probably had in you getting that job in Ohio? Well, I mean, Ernie and I were very, 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 very close. We spoke once a week. And when I left Chicago in 94 to do the play-by-play -play at the University of Michigan, we saw each other a lot. And I was with Ernie 
about three weeks before he passed, I went, drove from Chicago to see him. He and his wife, Lulu, um, were at a retirement center just outside of Detroit. Um, unbelievable uh, human being. As we are recording this interview right now, David, to my left is a picture of Ernie and myself. Ernie's last broadcast, September 29th uh, in 2002. And it was with the Blue Jays and the Tigers in Toronto because I was calling the Raptor game. I spent the entire day before the game. I walked over from the hotel, which was right near Skydome, saw the entire game in the booth with Ernie. We walked back after the game, just me and Ernie, back to the hotel. It was the last game of the season for the Tigers. And... Um, and I'll, I'll never forget that as long as I live, that I spent Ernie's last broadcast the entire day with him. And this is how humble he is. So his, um, and it, you can, it's available, I'm sure, through YouTube or Google at Ernie's last broadcast in his sign-off. And, you know, his voice cracked. It was emotional for Ernie. I mean, think about this. Ernie uh, grew up in Georgia. He had a speech impediment. Um, he actually, when he wrote to the sporting news, they thought he was some seasoned veteran, you know, and so they employed him to do, you know, games, uh, for the Atlanta crackers. And he was actually traded for a catcher, uh, Clint Dapper. And so, um, but be that as it may, Ernie and I were very, very close, but just to show you the humility, humility of Ernie. So we get done with the game. And people are you know, just cameras are all over them. The beat reporters. The game was really secondary, David. Yeah. Because this was about Ernie. So I wanted to keep my distance. This was Ernie's moment. And after we got done with all the interviews, and it was a good 30 to 40 minutes, after he was done with all the interviews, we're walking out of Skydome and we're walking back to the hotel, which was probably two blocks tops from the hotel in Toronto. And he looks at me and he goes, you know what I'd really like? And I'm expecting some profound statement, you know, or maybe just to give Ernie a space and let him be with his own thoughts in his hotel room. And Ernie looks at me and says, you know what I'd really like, Charlie? I said, what's that, Ernie? He goes, I'd love some soup. <laughs> and I went, I'm thinking to myself, did I, did I just hear that correctly? You wanted soup? He goes, is there a good deli around here we can just grab or a restaurant we can grab some soup? And I said, we'll find one, Ernie. And yeah. sure enough, there was a sandwich place that was open on a Sunday night because the game, you know, by the time the interviews uh, were over, it was like six o'clock. But there was a deli that was open. So we went to the deli and we had soup. Yeah, that Ernie never, you know, and, and you obviously knew him way better than I did, but he, he never thought he was all that. He was such a, such a humble guy. And that yeah. was, that was a great thing about him. I want to transition back to, to your career. Um, talk about your sports spectrum days, how you got involved in that, how long you were doing the radio show and, and what that meant to you. Well, uh, I really didn't know too much about sports spectrum, the magazine at all. Um, Ken Van Proyen at a radio Bible class in Grand Rapids, Michigan, reached out and said, I'd like to come see you and I want to talk to you about something. So I said, okay, I mean, you know, worst case scenario, you listen, you don't think it's a fit and that's it. So Ken comes down to the radio station, WGN. And at that time, we had just left Bradley Place uh, near Wrigley Field, and we moved downtown on Michigan Avenue in the Showcase Studio and Tribune Tower. And Ken came in, and we had a talk. And his vision was, we'd like to do a Christian sports talk show. We wanted to do a Christian sports talk show where we have guests, and it's just like a sports talk show, 
but this is going to have a Christian slant and these athletes are going to be able to share their faith. They're going to be able to give their testimony. You're going to have to drive the ship and we want you to be the guy. So I'm thinking about it and it sounded wonderful. No one was doing it. Um, and I mean, there were Christian radio stations, obviously, around the country who would feature from time to time an athlete in their own market, but nothing like this. And it took off. I mean, it took off. We had hundreds and hundreds of radio stations around the United States pick up the program. Some every week. Sometimes they take the program twice a month. It was on air every Saturday from, uh, uh, let's see, from 12 to 1 um, Eastern time. And so it was, that, that was Ken Van Proyen, and that was all Ken Van Proyen. I was the host, but Ken Van Proyen made that show, period. Well, I'll tell you what, Chuck, it was, it, in my household, it was must listen to radio. Every Saturday, I lived in Kansas City, every Saturday from 11 to 12, I would think of errands to run so I could go listen to it in my car and not be distracted by the lawn needs mowing or <clears throat> whatever the case may be. I, I loved listening to that show. How long did you do the show? Uh, I want to say like 13 years. I, I mean, and then it got to the point where uh, my schedule, when, when I started doing that show, um, I was at GN and then I went to Michigan and then I was only in Michigan for four years before I took the Raptors job and Ken worked his tail off when the Raptors were on the road. He made sure that he found a radio station somewhere in that city where I could go in to do the show. And I had an ISDN line, not to be too technical, with your audience, but it was a hard line. So there was a little box and you plug a cable in, you got your headset. So in Toronto, I would do it from the house. But when the Raptors were on the road in Philadelphia, I would do the show from a Christian radio station in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And more often than not, the stations where I went carried sports spectrum. Yeah. So, uh, that worked out well, but then it got to the point where it was really, really hard. Even though we were flying charter with the Raptors in the NBA, it was very difficult uh, with the travel and I was having no downtime and I decided, you know what, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Now, how much of the show was live? Cause it, it maybe, it, maybe Ken gets the credit for that, but it it sounded so seamless. And, and you could never tell if it was something where you were sitting there live in a studio at some time or if you had recorded the whole thing the day before or if you had parts of it where, you know, you were doing an interview that had been re recorded before. How much of the show was was you live? I would say probably. I, I would say we were live close to 100 percent of the time. Wow. There were times when I would interview an athlete, for example, when. I remember when. Uh, the Raptors were on the road speaking of Philadelphia and Kyle Korver was playing for the 76ers. And I approached Kyle uh, before a game. And I said, Kyle, I do sports spectrum. Um, and I would, I would bring magazines with me so they knew it was legit. Right. And so I would say, would you mind that if, you know, after you're done shooting and, before I start my broadcast with the Raptors, can I do 10 minutes with you? And that's how we did it. I mean, I would, I would usually call the PR director and the PR director would talk to players. Uh, we were really never, ever turned down. Yeah. Oh, I, I would imagine. I, I, when I'm in the clubhouse, <clears throat> you know, whether it's covering the Royals or covering Sporting Kansas City or even college sports that I do quite a bit, uh, and I know that a particular player is a Christian, I will tell them, you know, my regular job is to cover this, the event, cover the, the team, but I'd like to talk to you about your faith. 
And I always say, I'm not a sports writer who happens to be a Christian. I'm a Christian who happens to be a sports writer. So hopefully that would, would resonate with them. And I would set up something where we could do that type of thing later. And it's amazing how infrequently somebody would say, no, thanks. I'm not, I'm not interested in that. Yeah. You know, there's a fine line. I, I had to walk because I am gainfully employed by right. a company. So I respect that. Trust me, I respect that. And I never tried to coerce someone or force anyone right. or put an athlete or a coach or a sports personality in an awkward position where they felt compelled that they had to do this, right. where they would compromise the ethics because I didn't want to go there because it really serves no purpose to do that. Right. If an athlete said, listen, and I've had athletes tell me, listen, you know what? I am a believer, but I'm just not comfortable expressing myself because I'm afraid I'll say something or it won't come out right. Hey, I'm good with that. I get it. No worries. It's all good. You know what? You know what? You love the Lord. You've accepted Christ as your personal savior. And you believe that the Lord died on the cross, rose three days. And one day we're going to have eternal life. That's cool with me. I get it. I'm not going to put you in an uncomfortable presence where you just don't feel at ease. Yeah. And that, that's, you know what? Honestly, David, I respect that just as much as somebody saying, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Because everyone has a different journey and a different path. And while their heart is the same, a heart for the Lord, they just have different ways of expressing it. Sure. And some people are more comfortable, just like in everyday everyday life. Some people are more comfortable expressing that than others. Um, you were with the, the Raptors for 10 years. How did that come about? Well, uh, I, you know what? I was doing play-by-play at the University of Michigan. And um, I, I, a, a friend of mine said, the Raptor job is open. Now, honestly, and this is how you have, how sometimes even to this day with my relationship with the Lord, um, you know, I, I want it on my time and not God's time. And I struggle with that even to this day. So I'm going to turn the clock back. So I'm at the University of Michigan. I'm at WJR. That was my employer. And they carried the Michigan games. And so I got a call from the Milwaukee Bucks. A couple of years in, I was only uh, doing Michigan games at JR for four years. Two years in to my stay at JR, um, the Bucks called. And so they said, we're going to have an opening and we're going to bring in two people. And one is from college, you. One's from the pros. And that's Ted Davis of the Dallas Mavericks. So I flew to, uh, from Detroit to Milwaukee at the Fister Hotel, and I met with the owner, Herb Cole, and with John Steinmiller, who was running the Bucks at the time. Wonderful man. I've known John forever. Uh, his brother, Willie, was on the Chicago Sting NASL team when I called their games um, way back when. And I love... John, very, very much. Wonderful man. So we did the interview and I knew that it was not going to go well because I got, I just got the impression that they wanted a pro NBA voice and I didn't get it. Then Orlando opens up and they said, why don't you apply? And I applied for the job. And Alex Martins, who, again, is a friend of mine now and who's running the magic. And Alex Martins says, hey, you know, I've got your tape and you're really, really good. But I also have a guy who's paid his dues here doing pre F and post. And while a decision has not been made, I would think we're going to go there. But I want to let you know you're good enough to do the NBA. And I've always wanted to do the NBA. So I waited and waited, and then I got the call saying, we're going another direction. I was devastated. I was completely devastated. And I said, Lord, you know what? You brought me right there to the brink 
with Milwaukee, Orlando. Gosh, you know, I'm not sure I'm ever going to be able to do this. And then all of a sudden the Raptor job opened up in 98. And uh, some friends of mine said, you know, go for it. And I applied. Next thing I know, I get a second call back. I saying, hey, come in for an interview. Came in for the interview. I thought that went well. He, um, the uh, Nelson Millman ran it, ran the interview. Very impressive individual, great person, very enthusiastic, very engaging, and said, I've got some other people we're looking at. I said, I totally understand, totally get it. I had been through this before, so I had kind yeah. of, you know, put myself in a position where, well, if I get it, great. If I don't, you know, same old. So then uh, he had me come back for a second interview and said, you know, you're at the final two. This is going to be very difficult, but we will let you know. And so I was driving on the 401 from Toronto back to Ann Arbor, where we lived. And he called me halfway, halfway between Toronto and Detroit and said, you know what? We made our decision. You're the guy. And there you go. That's, that's really cool. Um, and I love hearing all the detail. You're like, you're like the ball player that can remember, you know, wh- what pitch he hit, what the count yeah. was, you know, whether it was an outside slider or, or whatever. So it's great to hear uh, all that detail. A, a lot of broadcasters have a signature call, you know, Dick Vitale, you know, awesome baby. And, and, you know, Keith Jackson, Woe Nelly and things like that. What's your signature call? Well, I mean, I, in a sense, I don't have one. I guess in Toronto, it was get out the salami and cheese, mama. This ball game is over. And I'll because, ask about that in a second, but go ahead. <laughs> because I got a letter from a guy um, when I was doing TV. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm locked into the Raptors. Love the Raptors. But, I'm, you know, I just get a craving for a sandwich. And so when you think the Raptors have won the game, can you just say, hey, this game is, you know, in the books or some, some type of notification so I can go to the kitchen and make a sandwich. And so I thought, hmm, okay. So about a couple games later, Raptors are up by like eight points with 12 seconds to go. And out of nowhere, I went, <laughs> get out the salami and cheese, mama. This ball game is over. And my color guy's looking at me like, what? And in the headset, the director and producer said, uh, Chuck, are, are you okay? What was that? I said, and then in my, I pushed the button down, the mute button, where I could talk to the truck, but the on-air audience couldn't hear me. And so I said, don't worry about it. I'll let you know. Well, I'm expecting, like, to be terminated, you know, three minutes after the game. So the producer and director said, yeah, we didn't really get an understanding what that was about. I said, well, I got a letter, so on and so forth. The next day, the receptionist at the Air Canada Centre in Toronto calls me on an off day and says, Chuck, we are getting flooded with these calls about what you said last night. People are loving it. You got to do it again. I went, what? And they said, yeah. So... Next game, Raptors again, a big. They're up by like 14 with a minute 30 to go. And I said, get out the salami and cheese, mama. This ball game is over. And then it took off. We had T-shirts. We had promotions. We had everything. It was crazy. Did you get an endorsement deal? uh, I did. The salami company? I, I got an endorsement deal with a pizza company, a salami and cheese pizza. That's that's awesome. So you didn't have a, a, a an action, you know, uh, an action call or anything like that, like uh, Ken Harrelson's. Um, uh, and I'm now drawing a blank. You know, you can probably tell it to me better than I can. I apologize for not getting it, but she, she gone or, or something like that. Yeah. But, um, you didn't have one in game like that, but you but people always knew when you knew that the game was over. Yes. <laughs> and, and I mean, like, uh, 
you know, we had we had things. I mean, we had. You have to understand where the Raptors were in those days. It was the the franchise was in its infancy, mm-hmm. and a lot of a lot of spectators on TV or in the arena were just catching up with what the NBA, the style of the game, the players, everything. And so we had fun. Yeah. And I'm not embarrassed to say that we had fun and we wanted to incorporate that fandom with the broadcast. And so now it's a mature audience. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I don't think what I did back then would play today in Toronto because the fans are knowledgeable not saying they weren't, you know, 23 years ago, but the fans were saying what, like, okay, we got the, you know, Cleveland Cavaliers coming to town. Who's on that team? Or we've got the San Antonio Spurs. Um, you know, why is Texas playing basketball? Those things, you know? So, yeah. uh, but it was great. I, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I love my time in Toronto big time. Now, you, you did some, we talked about your time in Michigan and, and as well as at DePaul, um, you know, in Chicago. You prefer the NBA game over the college game, though? Well, I do. I, let me say this. From a relationship standpoint, the college game was awesome because I, was, I, I had a chance to know these young players when they were freshmen I sometimes when I was at DePaul, I was very close with Ray and Joey Meyer and Jim Molinari, solid believer. Uh, Jim right now uh, is an assistant at Boston College. And Jim was my roommate um, when both of us were single with DePaul. And Jim, um, you know, was right there with Joey and Ray with DePaul. I sat in on film sessions I was there when they would bring young people in for recruiting visits. And so, you know, the players that elected to play at DePaul uh, and also at Michigan, because Steve Fisher was great to me and Brian Ellerby, but you get to know these kids as 17, 18 year olds. Yeah. And you get to know their parents because the parents are in a waiting room after a game, you say hello, you get to see a player maybe for four years and there's that bond, that connection. In the NBA, it doesn't work like that. In the NBA, this is a business. Yeah. And while you may get to know a player, it's not as deep and personal because these players, I'm not saying they're jaded, but this is their livelihood. This is their right. job. And so they've got, you know, and they're 12 corporations, so to speak. They're multimillionaires. Right. They have to take care of their body. This is a blessing. And where in college, you know, they're running around trying to find whether or not they've got study hall at six o'clock, <laughs> if they can grab a submarine sandwich coming up. You know, they got practice, they got this, they got that. And I mean, it's a different world from yeah. a basketball standpoint, from an announcing standpoint. Um, if you're with a high D1 program, and I was with two, Michigan and DePaul, it's almost like a pro franchise. Yeah. Especially like at the University of Michigan, there was no doubt in my mind because I was in with the tail end of the Fab Five and then with a very celebrated recruiting class right afterwards. Yeah. You know, with Tractor Trailer, Maurice Taylor, Maceo Baston, Gerard Ward. I mean, we could go right down the list. It was unbelievable. But uh, from a broadcasting viewpoint, the NBA game, I love. And I mean, I'm hoping I can broadcast NBA ball as long as the Bulls want me. Uh, but, you know, the, the college game, um, you know, the NBA game is more athletic and the pace, everything. I just I love the NBA. I, I, I want to talk about the NBA. And I don't want I don't want this to get uh, too negative, but I do want to talk about the current situation in the NBA. And it's about as popular as it's ever been. Maybe, maybe not quite as much as when Magic and Larry Bird were, were going head-to-head for NBA titles, it seems like, every year. But it's almost as popular as maybe it's ever been, and yet some people are completely turned off by it. Why do you think it's so divisive? Why do you think there's so many camps at opposite ends of the spectrum? 
Yeah, you probably have to ask people who feel that way because my take is that, you know, these are the greatest athletes in the world. What they're called upon to do on a nightly basis now, you know, I say that and I'm a little bit biased, obviously, because this is the sport I cover. Right. You know, if I had to stand in the home plate 60 feet, six inches away from a pitcher who, by the way, is not using substance on a ball. Um, <laughs> but I mean, if I'm standing 60 feet, six inches away and all these teams, it used to, it used to, you be, could count on one hand, maybe two, how many pitchers uh, in major league baseball could throw near a hundred. One, two, three, maybe. Every team now has at least one guy yeah. who brings it that way. Yeah. It's amazing. So when you get and now with the sophistication of a four seamer and a cutter and you know a hard slider and and oh by the way when I throw my fastball it's coming right at you under your chin and I can control that that's not going to bean you but it's going to be right there at that spot just to give you a little signal that if you stand near the plate. This is what you're going to get. Yeah. You know, I'm not here to intentionally hurt you, but right. I'm here to move you off the plate, um, which is a cat and mouse game. But, um, you know, I just think the NBA is great. And um, probably, David, that question is best uh, served to someone who has issues for whatever reason with the sport. Okay. I, I want to tell you a real quick story and then we'll get back to And I'm only telling you this because I know you're a sports fan. And you were just referring to the to the chin music uh, of baseball. Interviewed a former player uh, with the Kansas City Royals. He was a pitcher, and I said, and he was a pitcher started in the early to mid seventies, finished his career in the mid eighties. And I said, I heard a story one time. I want to make sure it was you. I said, did you used to do the the fantasy camps? He said, I still do. This guy's in his his late sixties and still in pretty good shape and stuff. And I said, well, I heard a story about you. And I, it may or may not be true, but one time one of the, the campers got a hit off you in one of the games at the end of it and starts mouthing off from first base. And the next time he came up to play, you nailed him between the two and the five. And, and he said, well, it wasn't on purpose. <laughs> and, and I said, wait a minute, you had pinpoint control. He said, well, I did it as a joke. <laughs> this guy was so competitive and had such good control, even in his I don't know when this happened in his fifties, probably he could hit the guy without hurting him, but he, he still was that competitive. The guy was mouthing off that, uh, you know, this guy wasn't, I'm not going to say his name cause I don't want to get him in trouble, No, uh, but you know, if, if uh, you're just, you're a former league player, I'm a, I'm an accountant and I get hit off you. Boom. He wore one the next time. So I thought that was kind of a funny story. I want to wrap up with this stuff uh, about the bulls. How many people outside Chicago, still think Michael Jordan plays for the Bulls? <laughs> well, uh, again, good question. So we're in Mexico, hmm, uh, I want to say four years ago, and we are on a bus, and the traffic in Mexico City is ridiculous. It's horrendous. So we have a police escort, and there are two buses and we're going to the arena for the game. And we look outside, you know, from the windows to the uh, crowd on the streets in Mexico City. And they're wearing Bulls 23. <laughs> and like, like a line. I mean, just it was a litany of like Bulls, red, white and black. And <laughs> the person I'm sitting next to says, hey, Chuck. Do you think they know that like Michael Jordan's not going to play tonight? <laughs> and I said, hmm, we probably shouldn't disappoint them. But again, that's the that's what branding is all about. Yeah. So, you know, because no one thinks of Michael Jordan as a Washington Wizard. No. No, no one thinks of him as the owner of the Charlotte Hornets. Correct. Or anything. They think he still still wears number 23 and still hits outside outside shots and then looks at Spike Lee like he's crazy. So, yep. Uh, real quick, what are some of the highlights of your career? 
Well, I mean, listen, there are so many that, you know, if I, if I gave you two or three, I probably, when we are, um, when our, our session is over, I could say, oh, you know, I forgot. <laughs> I'll say this, um, you know, I can look at different chapters of my life. Um, you know, I remember the first 15 years in Chicago, um, you know, I, the, the 85 Bears, I was able to do their pre-half and post-game. And the 85 Bears remain, in my opinion, the greatest single-season football team in the history. I'm disappointed they went only to one Super Bowl in that window. They should have gone to more, but they had instability at the quarterback position because of injury. And then, of course, Wilbur Marshall left as a free agent to Washington, and that defense was never the same, even though it was really, really good. But to break up that linebacking core, you know, Singletary, Otis Wilson, and Wilbur Marshall. So the 85 Bears, they've got to be, you know, covering Ray Meyer and DePaul, Ray and Joey, unbelievable people, just great people. And then, you know, the Cubs, the 84 Cubs to me, you know, remains, even though in 2016 they won the World Series, I wasn't around that club. I was broadcasting Bulls games but I was around the team in 84 and 89. And I can tell you the 84 Cubs team, their chemistry in that locker room was probably the best I've ever seen any team. Now, does that mean other clubs and other sports don't have great chemistry? Of course not. But that was the team that I was doing yeah. pre and post coverage with. That was a fantastic team. Um, and, you know, then Michael arrives, you know, in the 84 draft, and NBA ball really took off to a completely different level. So we could go all in all with the yeah. Raptors. I mean, I saw Vince Carter, Tracy McGrady. I called Kobe's 81 game. So it was all good. And, and Ernie Harwell. And Ernie Harwell. All right. I always wrap up my, my interviews with these two questions or these two statements. One's a question, one's a statement. Talk about your family. Well, um, three children. And uh, um, TC is with uh, the Memphis Grizzlies, and um, he is in the um, he's the head video coordinator of the Grizzlies. Uh, Kara works in uh, communications with the Wizards and the Washington Mystics, and she's outstanding. She knows hoops. Let me tell you what she knows basketball, and she has a great feel for the sport. Uh, and then there's Mark, and Mark is um, in uh, Brazil, and he's working there. And so those, those are my kids. All right. And then the, the last thing is, and, and I always tell people you can interpret the question however you want, and you can take it in whatever direction when you answer it. What is your legacy? I'm going to let other people decide that. I'm not going to – because you know what? I – Here's what I want when when I breathe my final breath. You know, I'm just a flawed man. You know, I'm, I'm honestly, I, I say this with all humility and gratitude to Christ. And, um, you know, my wife, Anne, has been a rock. She is unbelievable. And um, but the legacy, those are things that to me, I look at this way every day when I wake up. It's a blank canvas. And I, I have to paint that picture for today, not for tomorrow. And I can't look back at yesterday as hard as it is. But you want to learn from yesterday to apply to today so you can build for tomorrow. And so I really don't get caught up in legacies. I would like to think that, you know, my mom had a saying. She said, life is like an orange. You got to squeeze the most out of it. And you know, I, I, I hope that when I breathe my final breath, when I meet my Lord and Savior, uh, he knows that I squeeze the orange. All right. I'll, I'll give you one response that I got from one of my guests. He said, I want to live my life so the preacher don't have to lie at my funeral. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. All right. All right. Well, Chuck, it's good to catch up with you again. Good to do this somewhat face to face. I appreciate you taking the time. David, thank you. Thanks for listening to Sports Connections with David Smale. 
Make sure to subscribe, follow, and rate the show from your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more about David Smale and his work by visiting davidsmalebooks.com. Don't forget to join us weekly for new episodes. Until next time.